Okay, well, we are ready to roll tonight. Thanks for, uh, thanks for being here. We want to welcome those of you that are joining us uh, on uh, the live stream. A couple of, not so much memes, one of them's a meme, but one of them's just a really interesting picture that someone sent me from Dallas. Get this, this is at a gas station, a Valero in Dallas. You can now tip. I mean, what is this world coming to? You can actually add a tip after paying for your gas at the gas pump. Who are you tipping? I mean, it's certainly not the attendants that never seem to be able to replace the paper in the receipt printer. <laughs> it's one of my pet peeves. You know, you want to pay at the pump, but then you got to go all the way in to get the receipt. And I always tell them, if I wanted to come in to see you, I would have just paid here to begin with. It defeats the purpose of pay at the pump if you don't keep them full of receipt paper. But anyway, and then this next one, I got the biggest laugh out of this. This is, uh, would be an interesting prank uh, to play uh, on your friends that uh, don't believe in the rapture. But basically, you take some helium and some blow-up dolls, and then you just watch people, <laughs> you watch people react. Uh, yeah, take a, it took me a second, too, but you got to look up at the sky. Those are blow-up dolls and some helium, and everybody's going, what? What happened? So anyway, all right. Uh, so we're going to do it a little different tonight because we're dedicating the night to question and answer. So I'm going to uh, do the announcements first uh, to give you some resources that we've uh, posted here in the last week since we last met. But our overall theme here is the time is now, why Bible prophecy matters now more than ever. And we've been talking about ways in which the stage is being set. Uh, so far, we've looked at 11 broad categories since we started this series. We looked at how the stage was being set prophetically, geologically, atmospherically, economically, ecclesiastically, demonically, psychologically, genetically, satanically, geopolitically, and then last week, astronomically. And uh, we're going to press pause for this week and just uh, take a look at some questions and answers. I've got several uh, that I've uh, selected from people that emailed them in, and then, of course, we'll intersperse your questions uh, as well. Uh, generally speaking, about Bible prophecy, but it doesn't have to be that. Any theological question, uh, uh, you know, if I don't know the answer, I'll tell you I don't know the answer. So, But some quick announcements, some resources that are hot off the press. Uh, uh, this morning I was on Christian Underground News Network, and we talked about things that can never undo the believer's salvation. Things that can never undo the believer's salvation. I hope you'll take the time uh, to listen to that. And then uh, we posted on Monday episode 5 of Dr. Hickson Answers Your Questions. And so if you find that kind of stuff interesting, it was uh, a whole host of questions, about an hour and 20 minutes worth of questions. That's available as a podcast. Of course, Sunday we were in Chapter 6 of Nehemiah. That's a video uh, that's available at notbyworks.org. Everything is available at our website, notbyworks.org. Uh, or you can also get it on our Rumble channel, the videos. Um, we did a podcast last week, at the end of the week, on uh, Jesus' enigmatic parables of the kingdom. That was part two of an ongoing series I'm doing with Lucas Doremus. Uh, that was a great one. We talked about the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the wheat and the tares. Uh, I encourage you to check that one out. Wednesday last week was our uh, regular weekly world events update uh, with Randy. That'll be uh, posted, uh, a new one will be uh, posted tomorrow. Uh, I also... Uh, did one Saturday. Our, it's a kind of a limited series that we're doing on Saturdays on preparedness. And this last Saturday was on how to prepare for an economic collapse. We've done 
how to prepare for uh, civil unrest, how to prepare for an EMP or cyber attack. And I think this Saturday we're going to do how to prepare for natural disasters. And so that's coming up this Saturday. Uh, Leo Holman and I had a great discussion about Russia's role in the coming New World Order. That's available at notbyworks.org. Just uh, click on the podcast uh, uh, menu item there, and you'll see that listed. That was from August the 3rd. Um, and Leo's a brilliant guy. I mean, we don't see eye to eye on some of the timing of the eschatological events, uh, uh, which I regret, but uh, he's a great guy. We, we, rec- we respect each other, and I certainly value his politic- uh, you know, political insights. A um, couple of events coming up uh, right around the corner, uh, right here in this room at Plum Creek Chapel. Uh, TPUSA Faith is hosting, co-hosting with Not By Works, a, an event uh, where I'll be speaking on Borders, the Bible, and Believers. Borders, the Bible, and Believers, Exposing the Globalist Agenda to Eliminate Borders. So I hope you'll join us for that. It's free, 6.30, Monday night, September the 11th. Uh, Again, that's right here at Plum Creek Chapel. Then later in the month in September, I'll be up in Castle Rock at a a conference with uh, Randy Price, Bill Salas, and a few others. Uh, I'll be speaking three times at that conference. The theme of the conference is Israel, God's Prophetic Clock. And I've looked at the lineup of messages, and uh, lots of great messages. Yes. You said Castle Rock. I mean, I, I, I do not mean Castle Rock. That is up in um, Fort Collins, which is a suburb of Castle Rock, basically. I mean, depends how you look at it. No, yes, thank you for the correction. It is at Fort Collins, Fort Collins, Colorado, about, uh, what, a couple hours north of here, give or take? Uh, So anyway, uh, if you're available, you can click the banner on our website for more information. And uh, it is a paid event, uh, and it will sell out. So I encourage you, if you want to go, to to check that out. As far as I know, it's not being live streamed. Uh, A couple more conferences in October. I'll be uh, in uh, Norman, Oklahoma. I think that's right. Yes, Norman, Oklahoma, uh, for the Imminent Return Prophecy Summit. And then uh, in December at the Pre-Trib Conference in Dallas, uh, for that conference. Don't forget to sign up for the NBW Ministries newsletter. It's just a great way to stay in touch. We've kind of gotten into a routine now where it comes out on Tuesdays and Saturdays. So kind of the beginning of the week to remind you about Prophecy Night and things like that, and then at the end of the week to give you a rundown of all that we've done uh, that week. All right, with that, let's dive in. Um, I want to start tonight with a question that I'm going to use. It was an excellent uh, question, and as I was reading the passage to answer the question. I just was, you know, amazed again at this psalm. It's a favorite psalm, I think, of most people. I bet you next to Psalm 23, it is the most widely loved psalm in the book of Psalms. But it's Psalm 91, and this person asked a question about verse 8. And so as I was reading the psalm in context, I thought, oh, this is just beautiful. So I'm going to take a moment as by way of a devotional to kick off our question and answer, to simultaneously answer this listener's question, while at the same time giving us some encouragement from this psalm. So Psalm 91, it's an anonymous psalm. We don't know who the human author uh, was. There are five stanzas. So in Hebrew poetry, you have stanzas, and it does not necessarily correspond to the number of verses. Uh, There can be multiple verses in each stanza, but in this case, uh, there are five stanzas. And each stanza tells us something beautiful about the source of our safety. And uh, so we'll just think of this in terms of five sources 
of, of safety. But it's a, it's a great psalm when you're in danger, when you're struggling, uh, when you need help, uh, when you're down and out. It's just a great one to read when you're afraid. And I know you'll be, uh, you'll be familiar with it. So uh, the first stanza tells us that God's presence provides a source of safety. Uh, God's presence. And it says, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I mean, I love that phrase. Just a, a beautiful, uh, beautiful first verse. I will say to the, of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in him I will trust. So ultimately, God is the one who provides our protection. He is the most high, meaning our sovereign ruler. He's almighty, meaning all powerful. Uh, and when we rely on the Lord, then we're going to find shelter from the storms of life. It'll be a, a shadowy place of security, much like uh, you know, being under the wings of of a bird, as we're going to see in the next uh, in the next verse, um, he's our refuge where we can take cover, if you will, in times of danger. Now, the whole uh, psalm—it's just 16 verses—is about trusting God. And one of the things that we find out at the end is that trusting God doesn't guarantee that you won't have trouble physically on earth. People die for the cause of the Lord, uh, but if you have faith, if you're focused on what you cannot see. Uh, someone else sent me a question right before we started tonight that, you know, can you help me understand what it means to, to set your mind on things above, as Paul said, not on earthly things, but where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Um, I mean, th- that's a tough way thing. It's like trying to describe faith. And Paul, uh, the writer of Hebrews tells us faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So faith, by its very definition, is just trusting something you can't see. Well, you need that more than ever before when your circumstances that you can see are devastating and painful and tragic and hurtful and unfair, right? And so the whole psalm here has to be understood in the context of trusting God. It's not a guarantee that you won't suffer. In fact, Jesus promised we will suffer. This is the fallen world. The whole world is under the sway of the wicked one, 1 John five nineteen. Uh, so God's presence is something that ought to bring us security, comfort, safety. We want to stay close to the Lord. A lot of people, when they struggle in life, push the Lord away. That's, a, that's the wrong reaction for believers. We ought to embrace Him, pull Him closer, and you do that through His Word. God's protection also is a source of safety. The next stanza in our English Bibles is the next four verses, verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with his feathers, as I alluded to a moment ago, and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and your buckler. So the Lord rescues us from those who might try to trap us or from deadly diseases, right? He does this the same way a mother bird covers her young with her, with her wings, tenderly, carefully. Uh, he provides a defense for us, as symbolized there by the shield and the buckler. He goes on, You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day. In other words, 
24 hours a day, God is watching over us, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. It's just a very beautiful poetic way of saying night or morning, light or dark, it doesn't matter. God is in control, and we can be at peace knowing that. Not basing our peace and our security and our comfort on the outcome on earth, physically, of what we might be facing, but on God and His unchanging nature. Uh, the third stanza tells us that God defends us, and that's a great source of safety, from our enemies. Verses 7 and 8, A thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. And this verse 8 was the, the one the listener had a question about. What does this mean? Only with your eyes will you behold and see the reward of the wicked. In their uh, email, they said this uh, reminds them of when Israel watched God defeat the Egyptians in the Red Sea. I think that's possible. I don't know that that's what was in the mind of the author here. It doesn't tell us that. I think in general, the Lord is saying here that those who don't trust him, the enemies, the unbelievers, uh, are going to fall. They will ultimately Uh, be slain. But the believer, those who trust in God, which is the running theme throughout this whole song, uh, is invincible. Uh, And what's going to happen is we will see the wicked fall around us, but the Lord conversely is going to sustain us. Uh, Nothing can touch us except when God allows, Uh, nor can any, you know, enemy escape his retribution. So it's a little confusing in the New King James here because it says, only with your eyes. And, and that, that word only is actually better translated uh, in Hebrew. It's the word rach, and it means uh, nevertheless or however is where it's most commonly uh, translated. So if you insert that, it kind of makes more sense. You know, the enemies are going to fall at your side, 10,000 here, 1,000 there, but it's not going to come near you. However, what will happen is you will see and watch as they get their retribution, their revenge, so to speak. So the New American Standard here actually has, I don't have it on the screen, but it actually translates this, I think, the best. And it says, you will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. So that's the idea there. Uh, So I hope that answers their question. But two more stanzas that I think are just so encouraging. I love this one. Stanza four reminds us that God's angels are one of the ways that he uh, provides a source of safety for us. Uh, You, I'm sure, have heard this verse. Uh, Because you have made the Lord who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. In other words, if if, if God is your God, if you've placed your faith in Him and you serve the living God, then He's your refuge. And then watch this. He shall give His angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. That's a hyperbole in Hebrew. It's a figure of speech where using exaggeration to basically say God's going to take care of you. It's literally, if we were to put it in English, it would be, you're not even going to so much as stub your toe. Not literally, you know. We do stub our toe. This isn't a promise you won't stub your toe. But it's a hyperbole. He uses another hyperbole in Verse 13, you shall tread upon the lion and the cobra and the young lion and the serpent. You shall trample under foot. Isn't it great to know that God commissions angels to watch over and uh, protect us? This is one of the passages in Scripture 
that tell us that we have guardian angels. There's such a thing as a guardian angel. It's not that every human being has one guardian angel, but one of the purposes of angels is to be our guardians. Um, you know, for example, Jesus said in Matthew 18.10, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. In other words, children have special angels that are watching out for them. Or Hebrews 1.14, where the writer is making the point that, that Jesus Christ himself is far better than the angels. He nevertheless points out that are, are they, angels, not all ministering spirits sent to minister to those who, in, who will inherit salvation? So we have angels that are out there ministering uh, uh, for us. Interestingly, Satan, if you remember the account when he tempted uh, Jesus, he quotes verses 11 and 12 here when he was tempting Jesus. Uh, I think it was when he was tempting him to throw himself off of the uh, uh, temple. Um, he was urging Jesus to interpret this promise literally, but Jesus understood the real meaning behind God's promise here. Isn't that you won't literally dash, you know, stub your toe or that you should literally handle snakes the way some false teachers, you know, suggest today? They miss the point. By the way, if you don't understand language and the use of figures of speech, it can actually be dangerous to your health. And a lot of people don't understand figures of speech. You know, when Jesus said, if your eye offends you, gouge it out. Through 2,000 years of church history, there have been believers who have taken that literally and gouged out their eye. They don't understand that's a figure of speech. It's hyperbole, right? You know, if I said, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse, you're not going to go kill a mare and bring her in here and barbecue it. You know, you know what I'm saying is I'm hungry, right? That's just a figure of speech, right? And so, um, you know, Jesus, uh, you know, understood that, and he, you know, was, was you know, telling the devil, no, I'm not going to worship you. I'm not going to... Uh, uh, to serve you. He understood that God, uh, you know, is, is in charge and he's not going to tempt God by deliberately putting himself in a dangerous situation. And let's see, okay, God said that this serpent won't bite me or God said I won't stub my toe. That's not at all what he intended there. Uh, Jesus also quotes verse 13 here um, when he sends out the disciples. A lot of people miss this in Luke 10 when he says, uh, you know, uh, Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. He's just quoting Psalm 91.13. His clear intention was to assure the disciples that God's going to take care of them. He wasn't literally suggesting they should handle serpents. Um, he's not encouraging them to put their lives in danger by doing stupid things. He's just saying God is in control. Uh, so, great passage. He, will, he shall give his angels charge over you. And so, God's angels are one way that he protects us. And then finally, the last stanza, verses 14 to 16, it just talks about God's love and how much we should love him and how much he loves us. Because he has set his love upon me, this is talking about us setting our love upon God. If we love God, um, then he will deliver us. Not that it's a conditional cause and effect. He's just describing those who put their trust in God as those who love him. The concept of love in, in Hebrew is this idea of unconditionality. It's just complete trust in someone who is faithful. And uh, therefore, if that's your attitude and relationship with God, God will deliver you. I will set him on high because he has known my name. Right? If you know the Lord, you don't 
this world is just a speck on the timeline of eternity. You're not worried about what may happen. You know, little things, uh, you know, are, are nothing, and big things become little things, right? Uh, I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him with long life. You know, it's interesting. Again and again in Scripture, you see this promise that those who faithfully serve the Lord will experience longer lives. Now, that's not a hard, fast guarantee because we live in a fallen world and sometimes bad things happen to good people. And the Bible also addresses that. But in general, if you follow God's word and follow God's way, as Proverbs says many times, for example, um, and and the writer here is talking about, uh, it's going to go better for you, right? Um, You know, the, 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 the... uh, ultimately, God's promise of rescuing us from trouble finds its fulfillment in heaven. One way or the other, we're all going to ultimately be with the Lord in heaven. Sometimes we might have to undergo some pretty tough experiences through no fault of our own on earth. Sometimes God you know, is willing to rescue us from those circumstances and protect us through those circumstances. But he's not obligated to. He generally blesses people who follow his will, but not Always, there are exceptions. Um, you know, we need to remember, if you really want to look at it from a theological perspective, um, God may at times allow bad things to happen to his children. Look at Job, for example. But more than Job, look at his son. God allowed bad things to happen to his son, but for an ultimate purpose. God knows what he's doing, and the sufferings that we experience in this present life are just a, you know, nothing compared to the ultimate glory. They seem weighty at the moment, no question. It's tough, and I don't mean to minimize it or be dismissive, because I've been there just like you have, and it can be heart-wrenching. But if we keep a biblical perspective like this psalmist is saying and keep our eyes fixed on the Lord, uh, we, under, we understand that nothing is beyond God's control. And somehow, someway, he's using this, uh, just as he used the atoning work of his own son. Um, And, you know, uh, there's just nothing like the fulfilled life. I talked about that in the Q&A on Monday, I guess yesterday. Um, You know, Wearsby, who I, he was just such a wordsmith. He said, it's one thing for doctors to add years to our life. But God's ad, God adds life to our years and makes that life worthwhile. See, that's, Jesus said, I come that you may have life and that more abundantly. And when you have this perspective uh, that we talked about uh, in this psalm, if we dwell in the place, the secret place of the Most High, and keep our eyes fixed on Him, then that's adding life uh, to our years. We're going to experience the fullness of life. All right, so with that, let's, uh, let's move on. Uh, I think my next question is is a really, really good one. It's you guys' question, and I'm going to basically in 10 or 12 minutes destroy the gap theory view. So hopefully no one in here holds that view, but you shouldn't, and I'll explain that in a moment. But because I have kind of you know, spent some time on this first question, and this one is a little bit of a longer answer as well. I'm going to throw it to you for a question or two before we get to that one. Anybody have a question uh, from the floor? We need a uh, person to help with the mic. Gary, would you be able to do Oh, no, there you are. I didn't see you hiding behind the pole there. Come on up. They're right here. Uh, you'll need to turn both, both of them. Yep, turn them both on. The green one is on the bottom. The other one, there's a button right on the side there. Um, and just like last time, let them hold that one, and then you point that one right at them. All right, who's got a question tonight as we get going? Here we go. 
Uh, Pastor, was there an, an event in your life that ignited your interest in the rapture? Was there an event in my life that ignited an interest in the rapture? Um, boy, that's a good question. So I've told the story before about how I grew up in a home where we had, uh, you know, frequent discussions about Bible prophecy. And my grandfather was a real Bible prophecy buff. He was a dispensationalist trained by Dallas guys. And, uh, and so early on, I just was interested in the subject. I can remember talking to my dad about the order of events, and he helped me clarify the relationship between the rapture and the second coming and those types of things. And um, so I've always kind of had an interest in it. But I really feel like it was, to be honest with you, it was mostly academic and intellectual just from studying at the master's and doctoral level. It wasn't until I really woke up to the Luciferian conspiracy, as I tell the story in the introduction to Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 1, that it really became real to me. And then the more I researched and studied for my last two books, the more I realized, wow, this thing could really happen, like, soon. <laughs> you know, it's like, I really think this is going to happen, you know. Um, so, so I think probably the events of the last few years in particular with the, the, the control of virus scandemic, uh, that probably is what made me realize, man, they can change the world like that, and that's got to be getting close. So that's, that's really given me a newfound enthusiasm for the rapture. Good question. We'll do one more, and then I'll get back to the emails. Anybody up here? You know this lady? When we get our glorified bodies, or those that are risen when he comes to meet us in the air, are we going to, like, say if it happened now, would I have a 61-year-old body, or, like, my grandson, would he just be a baby forever in heaven? I mean, yeah, that's a good question. We don't have a lot of biblical data on that. Um, you know, obviously, the first thing that comes to people's mind is Jesus as a resurrected human being during those 40 days, um, uh, he appeared apparently the same age and recognizable and so forth. So it's not like he was so different that they didn't know who he was, but yet he was different enough that they knew something was different about him. Um, I've always assumed, uh, and by the way, I always when I get questions like this that I haven't really thought about, I always want to give the caveat, it's very possible there's a passage that speaks directly to this and I'm just not thinking of it so I may get an email well you forgot about this first and I'll go of course so I'm just speculating theologically I, I can't think of a chapter and verse off the top of my head maybe some of you can I don't know but my I've always assumed that it's going to be sort of the quintessential perfect body you know um, you know not old not young not in bad shape you know none of that just a a glorified body, but it won't have physicality. Remember, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom, so we're not dealing with the types of physicality that we have here. But uh, but it'll be just a what we know for sure is it'll be recognizable. So you'll always be you, I'll always be me. So we don't lose our identity when we die. We don't lose, which is by the way, why the the gender surrender movement that Satan is presiding over right now is one of the most demonic attacks. It's a cutting right to the heart, not only of the image of God and man, but the concept of identity, of humanity. It's a transhumanist movement. 
See, you know, artificial intelligence doesn't have gender. And I believe the Antichrist and the false prophet in particular, which I'm writing about right now, is going to use artificial intelligence to accomplish a lot of the things that the book of Revelation says he's going to do. And to prepare the way for that and to acclimate people that, he's trying to marginalize gender and, and convince people that gender means nothing. And so, uh, you know, that, that's, 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 you know, this identity, this attack on the identity is a, is a big deal. But in heaven, I'll still be JV, you know. We'll recognize each other. Um, I won't look exactly like this, but, you know, our physical body does not define who we are, right? If I cut off my arm, I'm still JB, right? So I don't know. I don't know the full answer uh, beyond what we know, which is we'll still be who we are. We don't turn into angels, you know, that's a category confusion, you know. Um, we we're human being, once human being, always human being, uh, and uh, we'll be back in our glorified bodies. All right, so this next question, let me read the question. Uh, how many of you are familiar, by the way, with the creation view called the gap theory? A few of you, okay. So uh, I'm going to explain the theory uh, in kind of using their definition. Uh, but basically, this person refers to a speaker at a prophecy conference where I spoke, and I won't use the name just because, you know, I, he might listen to the podcast and then he won't like me. But uh, anyway, uh, he said uh, that, you know, that there was this huge gap of time between when God created the heavens and the earth and when he created man. And uh, it's, it's uh, what's been called the gap theory. Um, and the reason it's called that is because they suggest that there's a gap of billions of years, in some cases, of time between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, right? So let's read those two verses, and then I'll kind of explain uh, why that is impossible. With all respect to people who hold the view, uh, you can be a great person and be wrong. Um, so not questioning how great you are. Uh, Genesis 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So basically what they're suggesting is that between Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2, there's a gap of time of billions of years, and they do this. Let's talk about the history of how this view came about. It came about as a direct response to Darwinian old earth beliefs. And because Darwinian scientists we're suggesting that the earth is billions of years old. Uh, Christians who, you know, had no reason to doubt the scientists, right? I mean, sounds familiar from recent years. Um, they said, oh, well, they must be right, but we also think the Bible is right. How can we merge the two? So they started with Darwinian thought and tried to force it into the Bible. That does not mean that people who hold the gap theory today are Darwinians. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that is, without a fact, the, the genesis, no pun intended, the origin of that view. It, it kind of resulted from that. If Darwin had never existed, we would not have a, a gap theory. It was popularized by, uh, among other things, the Schofield Reference Bible. Uh, but remember, that generation in the late 19th, early 20th century was heavily influenced by 
old earth Darwinian thought. So, I mean, who's to say if I'd have been alive then, if I might not have jumped on that bandwagon, you know? So it doesn't mean, you know, Schofield wasn't perfect. And neither was, you know, neither were other people. In fact, one of the best study Bibles on the market that I highly recommend, it was ge the general editor was a, was a personal friend of mine, and so were many of the other uh, contributors in the Old and New Testament study notes, the Nelson Study Bible, what it used to be called, now it's called the NKJV Study Bible. It takes the gap theory view, which, you know, I disagree with. But remember, study Bibles are not infallible. We, they're, they, they're not, you know, the Bible is what's infallible. But anyway... The idea goes something like this. Billions of years ago, God created the space-time mass universe. Then the geological ages that you read about in Darwin took over, uh, took, took place over billions of years of Earth history. The different forms of life developed that are now preserved in the fossil record. And these life forms represent those ages, the invertebrates of the Cambrian period, the dinosaurs of the Cretaceous period, finally the mammals, the birds, the ape men of the tertiary period just before uh, this more recent time period. Then the idea is that at the end of these geological ages, some great cataclysm took place on earth with Satan having rebelled in heaven and many of the angels with him uh, in, in that rebellion. And God cast him to the earth and the earth underwent this great cataclysm, leaving it in the end without form and void, with darkness on the face of the deep, as described in Genesis 1-2. So in their view, Genesis 1-1 is the original creation account, billions of years. Then you've got, it's, verse 2 says the earth was uh, void and without, was, was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the earth. So, uh, you know, you get this gap idea. God recreated or reconstituted the earth in six literal days of creation, recorded in the first chapter of Genesis. Uh, and so the argument for this theory makes verse 2 read like this, paraphrasing, the earth became without form and void uh, as though it had previously been a beautiful world. But now because of the cataclysm, it was devastated. It was just a remnant of its former self. And so there was a change of condition. It became without form and without void. Now it's I want to get to that concept of it became, because the text doesn't say that at all. But I'm going to, you know, kind of dismantle this view point by point. And the first place that my mind goes in comparing Scripture to Scripture is the plain, normal, emphatic teaching of Exodus 20, verse 11, which says, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Go back to Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When were the heavens and the earth created? In six days. Not before the six days, in six days. So to me, that ought to settle the issue. But, you know, theologians love to strain at gnats, and, 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 and they, uh, they don't like, uh, uh, like that idea. So, um, you know, the, the gap theory requires that only the surface of the earth was, you know, reconstituted after the six days. But that's not what Genesis, I mean, what Exodus 20 says. God created the heavens and the earth in six days. But going back to that notion, which they believe that uh, in verse 2 it says the earth became. It's the Hebrew word translated was. It's the, uh, you know, the Hebrew word um, 
Yahaya, Haya, um, and they say, oh, it can mean uh, became. Well, as with all words in any language, Hebrew or Greek or English, words have to be defined by their meaning. Just because it can mean, I mean by their context, just because it can mean became doesn't mean it does mean became. Every English translation, and I looked at not all of them, I looked at probably the top 12. I have about 40 different English translations, even some very obscure ones. There may be one out there if you look hard enough that uses became, but all the major ones say the, the earth was without form and uh, without void. Uh, it's simply a declarative statement describing the condition that existed at that moment. The earth was, in response to God's creative word, initially without form and without for, void. It does not mean that it became that. Um, if it did, we've got a lot of examples from the Old Testament where you could arbitrarily translate that Hebrew uh, uh, word hayah as became. And let me, let me just mention a few of them. I just looked these up. For example, uh, in Genesis 13, so same Old Testament text, same human author, Moses, uh, there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now, what is he saying there? That there became strife? That there was no strife for billions of years and all of a sudden there became strife? No. It, in that moment, he's describing the situation. There was strife. Or what about Genesis 15, 17? And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark. Well, did it take billions of years for the sun to go down? No, it's just describing the circumstance at that moment. It was dark. Or I love this one. Also from Genesis, I picked only ones from Genesis just because that's a good rule of thumb when you're comparing usages of words. Genesis 17:1, when Abram was 99 years old. Simple declarative statement. It says nothing about how long it took him to turn 99. I mean, we know it took 99 years, but, uh, you know, it, it's not in indicating any type of length of time. So back to Genesis 1, verse 2. Uh, or start out in verse 1 again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void. Uh, you know, over time, God, the next six days, he's going to create and mold and shape it. Um, you know, gap theorists use Isaiah 45, 18 as an argument for the use of became, because in this verse, Isaiah says that God created the earth uh, not in vain. He did not create it in vain, is what the verse says. Uh, I'll, let me read it. It's Isaiah 45, 18. Thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain. That's the same word uh, that is, you know, uh, translated, uh, you know, in Hebrew there is without form. But again, words have to be defined in their context, and it can mean in vain. And the context could not be more clear in Isaiah when he says, God did not create the earth without a purpose. He created it to be inhabited. Uh, and so what he goes on to say, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. So what they're saying is, well, God did not create the earth without form. So therefore, if verse 2 of Genesis 1 says it was without form, that must have had some other cause to it. But again, in verse 2 of Genesis 1, it means without form. In Isaiah 45, 18, it means in vain. 
does not mean without form. Um, so you've got several, uh, several things going on. Now, another grammatical point that I remember studying this 30 years ago uh, when I was uh, first introduced to the gap theory at Dallas Seminary in, in a critique of it in the class I was taking. You can't have a gap between Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2 because the Hebrew grammar does not allow for it. Kind of like I said on a program uh, today, you know, a lot of people think faith is a gift, but you have to have the gift of faith to be able to believe the gospel. You couldn't possibly believe it on your own. You're not, you don't have a mind. So God forces you to believe it by giving you a gift to get a gift. You know, you need a gift to get a gift. It's really confusing, the Calvinist view. Uh, but faith is not a gift, and Ephesians 2.8.9 does not say that. Ephesians 2.8.9 says, uh, For by grace you save through faith, and that not of yourselves. The word that is a pronoun that's neuter. The word gift is feminine in Greek. I mean, the word uh, faith is feminine in Greek. Nouns and pronouns have to agree in gender and number. That cannot refer to faith. It's referring to salvation, which is neuter, not feminine. So in the same way here, in, you've got a grammatical problem in the Hebrew text. Every single verse in the entire first chapter of Genesis begins with what's called a vav consecutive in Hebrew grammar. It's just a, a letter of the alphabet called a vav. Um, and it is indicating sequence. Uh, there is a sequence of actions implied. There was this happening, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, each following one after the other. And so when God said, God created the heavens and the earth, the next verse, that vav consecutive, and the earth was without form and void. It was the implication from the whole chapter is that it was immediately following the creation. Uh, so that's another problem. But then as a systematic theologian kind of guy, uh, let me just point out some other sort of death knells from other passages of Scripture. What did Jesus say in Mark 10, 16? Quote, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. He's talking about marriage there. So, from the beginning of creation. Well, if creation didn't start until billions of years later, Jesus made a mistake here. But Jesus didn't make a mistake. From the beginning of creation, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God what? Created the heavens and the earth. So it all happened from the beginning in six days. Uh, another big problem you've got is the notion of billions of years of death and destruction. You know, the dinosaurs and different ages that they believe fit into that gap. Before sin, where Paul says in Romans 5-12, Wherefore by one man sin entered the world. And death by sin. Death came about after sin. Before sin, there was no death. There was no death in the garden. That's why it was so profound when Adam and Eve sinned. And the first thing God did was kill an animal and provide a covering for their nakedness. And, you, and I've talked about this before, but you can imagine how just stunning that must have been. They'd never seen blood before. They'd never seen death before. And it showed them the seriousness of sin, by the way. Um, so you can't have billions of years of death of plant life and dinosaurs and all these other things. And then um, this last one, even science, secular humanistic science, rejects the gap theory. It's kind of a bit ironic since the gap theory developed, developed as a means of capitulating to science. It's kind of hoisted by that, by that own science. Um, uh, the whole essence of the geological age system, which some people try to accommodate using this gap theory in Scripture, uh, is based on what geologi geologists call uniformitarianism. The idea that over extended lengthy periods of time, 
there's this continuity of processes. You know, every uh, the rates of change and the rates of processes remain uh, consistent. Um, and so there's no room in their theory for some worldwide cataclysm interrupting those processes in the system of geological ages. In other words, the gap theory proposes that, yeah, we put all these ages that they come up with, and then this is just the next one right on top of that. Uh, they would never, you know, say, because, say that because everything, according to theologians who hold the gap theory, uh, you know, happened billions of years, uh, happened as a result of some cataclysmic event right in uh, that moment. Um, and then one final argument, just in case people, if you go and research this on your own, you might come across this view. Another argument is based on people saying that verse 2 says, uh, darkness was over the face of the deep. So they, they make a bad cross-reference and say, well, darkness is always evil in, in the world. And, 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 and so that's, that darkness refers to the devastation wrought by the devils being judged and kicked out of heaven. But that's not the case at all. In fact, Isaiah 45, verse 7 specifically tells us, God says, I form the light and create darkness. God created darkness just like he created everything else. He had to create darkness because he was going to go on to create day and night. And to have any context for day and night, there had to be light and dark. So, yeah, it's true that sometimes God uses darkness as a metaphor for evil. First John 1, we're supposed to walk in the light, not in the darkness. But that doesn't mean that that's what's going on there. There's no evil connotation suggested there. So the gap theory simply does not work. Um, you know, there are plenty of great books out there written on it in much greater detail if you're interested. But, you know, if you hear someone suggest, well, I believe in young humanity but old earth, reject it. It's not accurate. Uh, the earth and humanity and everything God created and spoke into existence is roughly 6,000 years old. Um, and, you know, there have been all kinds of uh, tests done to refute some of the alleged evidence of an old earth. You know, they did a carbon-14 dating on a, a wing bone from Kentucky Fried Chicken, and it was millions of years old. I mean, you know, stuff like that. So science has always been suspect, bought and paid for, uh, in many cases deceptive. And many well-intentioned geologists today, they're not deceptive. They're not trying to be deceptive. They're not openly part of a Luciferian conspiracy. But like many doctors also bought into the, you know, the scamdemic, many scientists buy into the science. Many climatologists buy into global warming because that's what they've been taught. doesn't mean, uh, you know, they have bad motives. They're just wrong. So, uh, no, you know, don't let someone's sincerity uh, persuade you into this false doctrine of an old uh, earth. Okay, uh, we'll do a question from, from you guys. Any, anybody back here? And then we'll come up here. Yeah, I have a question. Um, kind of the conversation that you had before the you started the meeting kind of spurred it on. But, okay. Um, you know, in reference to the Nephilim and, and where they came from, you know, in the Bible it doesn't say anywhere that all of the fallen angels came to earth. And right. if you look at the book of Enoch, it's pretty specific that it's not, that it's just a select few that came down here and corrupted it. And so it goes back to the theory, well, where did they come from? Where did the Nephilim come from after the flood? And if you look in Ephesians 2.2, 2, he talks about that, you know, Satan is, has power of the air. He's the prince of the air. He's also the prince of the world. And it kind of goes back to everything that's transpiring today with UFOs, what I still call them. 
Um, and, and it goes back to, you know, Revelations 12, 12. Um, and I guess my question is, is the way I look at it and the way I interpret it, and I just kind of like to get your opinion on it, is, you know, in Revelation 12, 12, it states that, you know, Satan is cast back down into the world, okay, uh, and his wrath will come during the tribulation. And I think it's L.A. Marzulli who coined the phrase, when we go up, they come down. And everybody looks at the, you know, the scriptures in Revelation about, you know, the third of the angelic host that fights Michael and, and they come down. Well, that battle goes on in the air. And when we go up, when we're raptured, I think it's symbolic that Christ doesn't come to earth. He goes to the area where Satan has power, which is in the air, brings us up. And at that point, I think they are cast down and that they are thrown back into the world and that they are taken, that the power of that heavenly air that he has now, where we're all witnessing UFOs and have been for years, that's over. And my philosophy or my theory on it is that he comes down and that, how does that, how does the Antichrist gain so much power? I believe that it's feasible that they support him in regards to his ascension during the tribulation and that it, it's all just a big ruse and you know the new age movement in you know explaining away the rapture oh you know the aliens take us because we're you know not mentally ready for the next step and this and that um, I believe that scripturally you can kind of track that and I, I, I see that in my mind how that could transpire during the tribulation yeah. and I just thought maybe I'd get your opinion on it yeah wow uh, first of all I mean there's very little as I listen to you speculation in what you said it's almost all pure out of scripture and I agree with you 100% where you did speculate in one case that's a fascinating thought that I hadn't really thought about and it makes a perfect sense to me that you know uh, as L.A. Marzulli put it, when we go up, they come down. I mean, we already know that's going to happen, that at the midpoint of the tribulation, as you said, Satan is banished from heaven. Remember, there's three levels of heaven, right? There's the sky where the birds and planes fly. There's the atmosphere up there where the sun, moon, and stars are. Then there's the dwelling place of God. Currently, Satan, uh, as the prince of demons, uh, he has access to God. He can come and go and talk to God. We see that in the book of Job. Uh, and he's certainly up there in the celestial realm. But after the midpoint of the tribulation, he is banished to the earth. And that's when, if you thought it was bad in the first three and a half years, it's going to get even worse. But, you know, you're absolutely right that the, demon, the demonic realm, the evil spiritual realm, including the Nephilim, which are part of that realm, they're a hybrid being, has been trying desperately to break through and create a more permanent presence on this earth. Satan wants to have the earth as his own. This is, he, he couldn't have heaven. That coup was rejected. And so now he set his sights on the earth. And so he and his co-conspirators, which includes not just the evil unseen realm, the UFOs and all that, but the human co-conspirators, the Luciferians, as I write about, uh, they've been working hard uh, to get that. And I think the closer we get to the return of Christ, 
as the, I make the case in the book, the more of an upsurge we're going to see in this demonic activity, but nothing like what's going to happen after the church is rescued and, you know, they're all banished to come down here. And so, um, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that's a great summary, well said. Uh, you know, I, I've only met L.I. Marzulli once, and that was in Orlando when we were both speaking at the conference, but I've always loved a lot of what he writes. I don't agree with him on some of the other details about you know, uh, theology maybe in some areas, but man, he has done a, a you know great job in really putting Nephilim back on the map, so to speak. You know, I mean, they're in the Bible; it's pretty clear. But he's really become an expert on that topic, and I value his teaching so uh, on that subject. So, yeah, I mean, I would agree pretty much with with everything you said that uh, we're you know Satan's going to have at his disposal all of these armies in the unseen realm. And uh, I believe the only way he can really increase the size of that army, since angels can't procreate, so there's the same number of fallen angels today as there ever have been. In fact, some of them are out of commission because they've been permanently imprisoned in Tartarus, the ones that cohabited with the women. So he's even got less than he started with, right? Like a great big loser, his battle plan is getting even worse. He's losing, you know, advocates. So what he's having to do is he's trying to create additional race through these, this cohabitation. And, of course, the, uh, any of the Nephilim that you know, survived the flood, which there's all kinds of speculation on how that happened, but what cannot be denied, I mean, there are people who don't take Genesis 6-4 the way the Bible plainly states it, which is that there were Nephilim on the earth after the flood. Uh, you can, if you, if you just can't accept that, if it's too far-fetched for you, you can try to come up with an alternative view. But by and large, it's, it's pretty universally agreed that that means what it says, which there were Nephilim on the earth after the flood. There's view, different views on how that happened, but the fact is they're there. And those Nephilim are not human. They're demonic in their hybrid nature, but they, in their human material form, can procreate. So now you fast forward, what, that was 2300-ish B.C., so here we are 4300 years later. That's a lot of babies. That's a lot of baby Nephilim being born. So those are all not redeemable human beings, but part of the satanic army that is being, uh, you know, recruited to do this final battle. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I another thing too is that you know I struggled a lot with that fact. Where did they come from after the flood? Because it made it very clear that he just you know the flood destroyed all living creatures on the earth. Um, you know, and then there's theories of oh you know one of Noah's sons' wives had corrupted right. DNA and this and that. But the thing is, is if you really look back to the fact that he has the power that of the air, so he. They weren't on the earth. Not That's all right. Were not on the earth when the flood took place. And there's one thing that you can count on with Satan. He he does the same thing. He knows what works, and it almost worked, which is why the flood took place. So my thoughts are, if they came down, you know, if if it worked before, they're going to try and do it again. Right. So after the flood, maybe there were other fallen angels that came down, did the exact same thing. But the the key for me is. He, he's not of this world. I mean, he, he is the prince of this world, but he does not reside here and does not do that until 
you know, halfway through the tribulation. Right. So, so, yeah, absolutely. I agree. And uh, so, yeah, as you said, first of all, the view that somehow a Nephilim snuck onto the ship and, you know, Noah's family is completely provably false. I mean, only the righteous human beings, the justified, the truly positionally righteous before God, which was eight members of Noah's family that were human beings. There were no Nephilim on the ship, okay? So, you know, but as, I, as you alluded to, one theory is that if they did it once, they can do it again. So how did we get Nephilim after the flood? More fallen angels, uh, you know, did the same thing. Now, some people, like my friend uh, Dr. Andy Woods, he, he, I've you know, talked with him about this. He says, oh, there's no way they would do that because they saw what happened to their friends and they don't want to be banished either. Well, maybe. I, I don't know. But, I mean, we have a long history of proving that, you know, punishment for crime is not necessarily a deterrent. If it were, the first time some murderer was, you know, uh, got the death penalty, we wouldn't have any more murder. So, I mean, it, I think that's speculation. I don't agree, but some people think it couldn't happen again. But to me, I don't even think you need to go there because think about it. Did, did all the angels die in the flood? No. <laughs> did all the demons die in the flood? No. Why? Because by nature, they're spirit beings. What are Nephilim? By definition, they are hybrid. It doesn't mean they're completely spiritual beings like demons, but they're not completely human either. So in my mind, it's very simple, plausible that, that when the floodwaters rose, they took on their spiritual form. They can shapeshift back and forth between human and, and physical. I mean, between uh, spirit and physicality. They're never human, but their physical form. And, and they waited till the floodwaters receded, and then they took on human form, you know, physicality again. So that, to me, that does not have any problems theologically. People might not agree with it, and I might not be right. But I don't see any violation of theological principles in that viewpoint. So, and by the way, it could be both. Maybe the original product of this unholy union survived, um, and uh, you know, their, their, their moms didn't. Their moms were human beings, and they perished in the flood, as did all the animals and anyone that wasn't on the ark. But the product, the, the Nephilim, you know, they, uh, they might have survived in their spirit form. And also, we might have a same sin being committed again by these angels. It could be both. I don't know. Or in a different way. Or in a, or in a different way, yeah. I, I believe yeah. that Nephilim do exist. Al alien of abduction is what you're thinking of probably, right? Well, I mean, yeah, I guess that's a possibility. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very real possibility. I certainly wouldn't Yep. And without a doubt. Yeah. I said that to somebody before we started tonight that I think given, you know, as I mentioned, 4,000 plus years of Nephilim, you know, population movement, you know, the, the Luciferians have a deep population program. They also have a population program and it's through the Nephilim. And, uh, you know, they, uh, we, we might be looking at someone um, and, and they may or may not be actually human. I mean, we know, what does the Bible teach us about our angelology and demonology? It all starts with theology, right? You know, that's what, you know, theology does is it allows you to draw some conclusions that are unmistakable in Scripture. And so anything else that you might dream up that violates those principles, you reject them. So like in the doctrine of salvation, we know salvation is a free gift by grace through faith, period. Anybody that says you have to work for it or you can lose it, we can reject that. 
because we've got our basis. Well, the basis of angelology is that angels might appear as humans. Very clear. Hebrews, you might be entertaining an angel and not know it. Or the angels in Lot's day that had dinner with him. Or the ones that came down and slept with the women. So we have lots of examples in Scripture of angelic beings taking on human likeness, right? And so uh, once you start there, then it's absolutely not as bizarre and crazy as it sounds to, to point out that you might be looking at someone and they might be some type of a non-human entity. But enough about the occupants of the White House. All right, who's got a question? Any? Up, oh, yeah, we had one more up here. Or back there, and then we'll, whichever you want. You pick. Whoever you think looks the smartest. I'm not the smartest, first of all. <laughs> um, but I was just going to ask you really quick, in that same vein of discussion, do you think that scripture, and I can't think of which one, what it actually is, what the address is, but where it's talking about at the end harvest when um, they're separating the wheat from the tares amongst, do you think that's what that means? Uh, no, I don't. Oh. Uh, and I just talked about that. That's one of the parables of the kingdom. Okay. And in my Friday podcast with Lucas Doremus, we, we touched on that parable. That it's, we we're going through all the parables of the kingdom. Okay. But the, all the point of the parables of the wheat and the tares is just that the Jewish people needed to understand that there's going to be a mixture of unbelievers and believers in the kingdom, in the lead up to the kingdom and in the kingdom itself, both. That they, you know, they, they seemed to think in terms of all or none, and they needed to know there's enemies among us. I think that's what that's talking about. Okay. Yeah, okay. but good question. All right, up here. Thank you. <clears throat> okay, so if um, dinosaurs are not real or didn't exist. No, they, they absolutely existed. Oh, they, oh, oh yeah, in fact, okay. some people think they're still around today. I mean, there's evidence that they're still around. Oh, today. okay. So yeah. I'm, I've got the wrong message then. So did they exist um, at the... I mean, they're not referenced in the Bible, correct? Well, Is no, they are. Leviathan, behemoth, there's references that can easily be understood as a large animal like that. They were on the ark. I mean, they were absolutely created animals, just like all the other animals, and they, you know... Is he pulling my leg? <laughs> What's that? Are, are you pulling my leg? No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm absolutely not. I mean, that's what the Bible says. Why wouldn't we believe that? You know, there's no question there are dinosaurs, and okay. but uh, you know, they don't ha doesn't mean that every one of them. Remember, there's just one of each kind, right? So you know, you don't have every single iteration of a dinosaur necessarily on there, and it might have just been an egg or a newborn. <laughs> doesn't have to be this giant, big, you know dinosaur oh, okay but so, absolutely they were created by god in the six days of creation walked the earth some parts of remote parts of the world today there have been sightings of dinosaurs again uh you know there's a lot we don't know but but we know that the biblical record indicates that you know dinosaurs were part of god's creation okay so those are not made up by no. the spirit okay what's so made up is the timetable they find one bone that's about that big and then they build these massive structures around it and say, well, we can tell what this was, and we can tell based on the layers of the earth how old it is. It's billions of years old, and it, you know, that's all made up. Okay. But the existence of dinosaurs is not. So on the ark, there were both there were mammals and uh, non-mammals? Non uh, birds. birds. Yeah, what, I mean, he tells us what was okay. on there. I don't have it memorized. Oh, okay. But, all uh, right. Yeah. Wow. Okay, thank you. <laughs> there were even cats. I mean, 
I don't know why. You know, I'm going to ask God about that when we get there. But um, I'm going to give you a cat for your next. Birthday. Would have been the perfect opportunity. You know. So, and in fact, if Nephilim did make it on the ark, it was probably through a cat. That's probably. That's that's it. All right. Um, let me do a couple on here. Uh, some of these are short. Great question from a listener about 2 Timothy 3 and 2 Timothy 4 and how both of those passages speak of, you know, the, the issues in the, the last days and, uh, and that he says, and he's right, that a lot of pastors and Bible students merge the two as if they're both talking about uh, the same Group, but they're actually uh, in chapter three talking about unbelievers. This is very clear. He says, "Know this: in the last days, perilous times will come." And then he gives this laundry list: men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, and so on. And it really parallels, you know, the same list in Romans one at the end of chapter one that, that's clearly talking about unbelievers. And then he even references Janus and Jambres, which were the two magicians in Moses' day that were, you know, re replicating the, the miracles that Moses and Aaron were doing. Uh, the Bible doesn't name them other than here. This is the only place they're mentioned. But church tradition early on says they, those were Moses' magicians. The, the, Paul says, as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these resist the truth. So clearly Janus and Jambres weren't believers. So the reference here is to unbelievers. But then in chapter 4, he goes on to say, uh, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Uh, he says, uh, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. I believe that's talking about believers, but believers that are apostate, that are you know, turning away from the church, turning away from His Word, being swept into this great uh, deception. So, um, you know, he, he just points out that you know, a lot of prophecy teachers kind of randomly cite both passages. He's probably talking about me. I think I've done that. Uh, but when I'm doing it, I'm just sent, saying, look, in the end, the lead up to the end times, the last of the last days, we're going to see, you know, a lot of things drifting away. I, I'm not necessarily meaning to imply that they're all believers or they're all unbelievers for that matter. Specifically in context, he's referring to unbelievers in chapter 3 and believers in chapter 4. So good, good question. Uh, one more here. Uh, a question this person brings up a Bible prophecy teacher I won't mention their name but who has uh, espoused a what he calls a conditionalist view but it's essentially the view that there's no hell that uh, unbelievers who die cease to exist they cease consciousness only believers have an immortal soul um, I just want to caution you very heavily against that view I mean that is one step away from total universalism uh, you know, it's, it's what I've seen. I've actually seen guys, known guys, that I, you know, shared lunches and ministry experiences with who started down that road and ended up, you know, in a complete denial of the faith. Uh, it is a slippery slope. Uh, biblically, it's pretty easy to uh, refute the view. You've got Jesus' statement in Matthew 25 that when he comes back, he's going to separate the sheep from the goats, and the goats, the unbelievers, are going to be sent to the everlasting fire. Everlasting fire. 
They cease to exist. It's not everlasting. You've got the experience that Jesus recounts in Luke 16 between the rich man and Lazarus. Where is the rich man? In hell, in torment. You've got the statement of Jesus, or statement of uh, Revelation, uh, that when Jesus comes back, this would be at the end of chapter 19, uh, first order of business, by the way, when he comes back, is to deal with the beast and the false prophet. <laughs> and I love this. I've been writing about this. Um, he, uh, the beast was captured. That's the Antichrist. The false prophet with him, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And these two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Now, when is that? At Christ's second coming, Revelation 19. Now, the book of Revelation, Revelation goes on to tell us that the next thing that happens is there's a, uh, the Satan, Satan is put in prison, bound up in prison, for how long? A thousand years. We call that the millennium. And then at the end of the millennium, let's find out what happens. When the, this is Revelation 20, verse 7. When the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, those, who number, uh, is, those whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured him, devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. How long ago were they put there? Who are the beast and the false prophet? Human beings. <laughs> one is the, you know, the head of the one world system. The other is his sidekick. Here you have two human beings cast into hell for at least a thousand years and they're still kicking and screaming, right? No, you don't cease to exist uh, as an unbeliever, uh, you know, when you die. So I, I would be very, to me, that's a, that's a line you just can't cross. I mean, there are some things we can disagree on, you know, uh, but I, I would, I would, that to me is borderline heretical. So, I mean, it is heretical. So, all right, uh, let's do, we've got time for a couple more here. Somebody else? How about Gary? Or no, you're up here. Just start here, just because he, he's up here. Already. We don't want. <laughs> you're smarter. There you go. Well, that's obvious. I have. I have two questions out of Revelation 14. Okay. Um, the first one's pretty simple. It's an either or. And when it talks about the uh, Battle of Armageddon and horses and the blood running to the up to the bridle of the horses is that figuratively speaking or literal will technology have been totally wiped out and everybody's going back to horses or is there anything in the oh you mean about the horses i thought you meant about the blood no. um uh no i think the horses are literal yeah okay i think the blood up to their bridle could be i'm not going to be dogmatic about it uh you know i've been asked this before i think it could be literal but it could also be a hyperbole, so it just kind of depends. But no, I think the horses are literal, yeah. Okay. Not, unless it's indicated clearly in Scripture that he's using something as a symbol, then you, just, then you take it literal. Okay, the second question, question is about the 144,000. Mm -hmm. Where did they come from? 
Where do they come from? So because it says that they're without any without fault, that they stand before the Lord. Yeah. Uh, are, are they already here? Yeah, no, they're here. The 144,000 are 12,000 men from each of the 12 tribes of Israel whom God supernaturally seals so that they can be his witnesses throughout the seven years sharing the gospel with people. They're missionaries. So, so but it, when it says that are they redeemed, so they are believers at this point? They, they, they become they believers, become yeah. Believers. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. And, uh, They're not believers at the rapture, or they would have been raptured. Okay. But sometime after the rapture, okay. yes. they uh, they get saved. <clears throat> and by the way, um, I don't remember who I was having this discussion with, but it was another one of those aha moments. You know, that's why I love theology. It's it's a lifelong process of studying and connecting dots. But I can't tell you how many times through over thirty years of ministry, I have made the point that at the start of the millennium. There's nothing but believers on the earth in physical bodies because all the unbelievers are the sheep that are cast into hell. And then I always say at the start of the tribulation, it's just the opposite. There's only unbelievers on the earth. That's not technically true because remember, there's a gap of time after the rapture before the official start of the tribulation. And people could be getting saved and undoubtedly will be during that time. I believe shortly after the rapture perhaps within minutes there will be people left behind who go oh jb was right there is a rapture i better see what he has to say about the gospel and they might read the gospel and in that moment they might get saved so so the point is technically speaking by the time the covenant is signed and the official clock starts ticking on that seven-year tribulation there might actually be believers but there's no question that the 144,000 are not saved at the moment of the rapture, or they would have been raptured. So somehow, after that, they get saved the way every human being from Adam forward is saved, by grace through faith. Uh, and then God seals them, and they, they are his missionaries, so that they can't be killed, and they are his missionaries uh, for the next seven years. All right, Gary? A couple of times tonight you've talked about uh, Lucas Doremus and... Uh, speaking about the kingdom parables. Mm -hmm. So Jesus was teaching of the kingdom of God. At the end of Acts, it says that uh, Paul continued to teach the kingdom of God. Same kingdom? Absolutely, yes. And when does that kingdom begin? When Christ comes back. Actually, 75 days after Christ comes back, it officially starts. But uh, so yeah. we, we don't live in the kingdom now. No. Uh, there is a few places in Scripture where the entire domain of God is referred to as the kingdom, like we're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the Son of His love, I think Colossians. Uh, but generally speaking, 95% of the references to the Basileia, the kingdom, in the, refer to the literal earthly messianic reign of Christ, the long-awaited kingdom that David was promised, that Abraham before him was promised, that's reiterated again and again, that the disciples, disciples obsessed about. They wanted to know where they're going to sit, what they're going to get, that Ezekiel describes the temple that's going to be there, the throne, all of that. So it's the literal temple. And the parables of the kingdom are actually mysteries of the kingdom. A mystery is new information. And so at the midpoint of Jesus' earthly ministry, roughly, he, he begins to speak in parables in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. And he says, I'm going to give you some new information about this kingdom. 
and he starts to elaborate. For example, the mustard seed is that the kingdom's going to start small and grow huge. The Jews, who had been kind of, kind of like America, they thought, you know, they've been the center of stage for so long, and they're God's chosen people. They were the apple of God's eye, and, you know, they were stunned that they kept getting carried off into bondage because, you know, we're Israel by all means. Uh, he, you know, they kept, tended to think that they're once again going to rise to the, the height of their power and dominate the world. And they will when the King of Kings and Lord of Lords comes back. But it's going to start small. As we've talked about, after the tribulation and all the devastation and bloodshed of that seven-year period, it's only going to be a pretty small remnant that starts that kingdom off. But by the time the thousand years is up, it will have grown into this massive, massive tree. So every one of those parables gives new information about the kingdom. It's not, as a lot of amillennialists and replacement theologians suggest, teaching about a new form of the kingdom. It never uses the word form. It's not have anything to do with the church. It's about the coming kingdom. And you guys should ch tune into that. We do every week or two, we do another installment of that. Uh, and you can check it out at notbyworks.org on the podcast tab. All right, one more. How about, well, two more. Uh, either one, and then we'll get the other one. So it appears that if you honestly believe and you're saved, you're good, and then you see all the advantages of being a Luciferian, is there a line that they can't cross, or are they good even if they do terrible abominations and join the, the Luciferians and participate in all those things? Yeah, so today I, uh, I just did a podcast answering that very question. It was called Things That Can Never Undo the Believer's Salvation. And Jesus doesn't say, I give you eternal life so long as you don't become a Luciferian. You get eternal life the moment you believe. And so, uh, yeah, I believe there are people that have abandoned the faith over through bad teaching or through life circumstances or compulsion or being raised by somebody or influenced by somebody. They might become Mormon or Jehovah's Witness or even join some witchcraft cult or something doesn't change what Jesus gave them. So our, you know, and if you think it does, then you don't understand grace. Not you, but I mean any people who think, who think that. Grace is free. Grace has no strings attached. You don't have to wait and see how you finish to find out where you go. You know, so we, wouldn't they want them to have it both ways and, and live the great life and participate with the globalists because they know they're saved? So the question is, wouldn't they want to have it both ways? ways and eat drink and be merry and then still get into heaven uh you know that's i think that's a logical fallacy you know people that's like saying um you know because i know i've got a life preserver i'm going to jump off the ship into the ocean i mean no i mean people that think that way and maybe some do i mean not just in the luciferian realm i mean pe people might somehow impugn upon god's grace and they might take advantage of it paul addresses that in romans 5 verse 20 he says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. You can't, no matter what you do, you can't undo God's grace. And then he says, now, I know what you're thinking, so then should we just go out there and start sinning so we can get more grace? And Paul says, God forbid, that there's serious consequences of that. You're gonna, it's not going to be fun. It's going to look fun, but it's going to be sickening. That's why all these people 
most of them are unsaved, but in Hollywood and other places that have wealth and riches and fame, how many times do you see them committing suicide, overdosing on drugs, living just terrible lives? They're not happy. They're not content because true contentment only comes through a relationship with Christ. So, but yeah, hypothetically, if a, if a believer chooses to turn his back on the Lord, God's not going to turn his back on him. He may have serious consequences of that, including you know, earthly consequences that might even include swift physical death, by the way. You know, the Bible clearly talks about that. Uh, there's sin that leads to death, First John tells us. But, uh, but it doesn't mean hell. So our eternal destiny is set the moment you place your faith in Christ. In that punctiliar moment in time, nothing after that can undo what God did. So you don't have to wait and see how you finish to know whether you're going to heaven. You can know right now, today. But yeah, we answered that and a lot of other questions similar to that on today's podcast. All right, last one. All right. So as you know, in uh, Matthew 24, Jesus talks at length about uh, end times events and mm-hmm. his, com- his coming. And uh, to pick up with a couple of verses here, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. I was wondering if you could just uh, talk about that last verse. Yeah, so that's a, that's an easy one. Um, so that's from the Olivet Discourse, which we have a whole chapter on that in my book, What Lies Ahead, and then we have a whole eight-part DVD series, or I think it's a streaming only now. We're phasing out the DVDs. Uh, but Jesus is basically, in the context there, he's, he's talking, of course, to the tribulation generation, not the present generation. Um, and he's saying, because they wanted to know, how will we know when you're about to come? He says, well, I'll tell you. And he gives all these signs that parallel perfectly with Revelation chapter 6. And he says, a lot of people are going to say, there's, there's the Christ or there's the Christ. Don't believe them. Because when, when I come back, everybody on earth will know it as lightning from the east to the west. So if you have to ask the question, you know, it's not me. <laughs> is what he's saying. I, everyone will know it. And then he just uses a metaphor. And, and here in the mountains or anybody that lives rurally, you know, you kind of, you can relate to this. When you see vultures circling, you know there's a dead body there. So it's just a sign. It's an indication. I don't think it's anything more than that. He's just saying just as certain as you can tell what has happened or is about to happen or whatever, those vultures are about to go, you know, uh, eat that carcass. Uh, in the same way, when you see these signs that I've talked about, you know that my coming is near. So I think it's just a, an analogy or a metaphor. So, Okay, well, thank you guys very much. I uh, hope that was helpful. We did get through most of the ones I have, but I'll save these for our next episode of, of Dr. Hickson Answers Your Questions. Uh, but you had some great questions tonight. I always love talking to, to Not By Works folks and Plum Creek Chapel folks. So have a great uh, rest of the evening, and we'll see you next time.